It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Dr. Lothar Grinke, CEO of Welkini. Welkini is the global neurotechnology leader that supports thousands of research labs, clinics, hospitals, and universities that focus on mental health, brain disorders, cognitive neuroscience, and neuromonitoring. Welkini's inspired neurotechnology is changing lives worldwide, and Lothar's passion is to help improve patient outcomes. Previously, Lothar was the Vice President and General Manager of the Medtronic Brain Modulation Business and started his career at McKinsey & Company. He is also an Adjunct Assistant Professor Position in Neuroscience at West Virginia University. Lothar Krinke, welcome into the corner office. Yeah, it's, I'm glad to be here. Oh, great to have you here as well. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago and gosh, I, I felt we should have recorded the podcast then because we got into so many things about your business and what you do. And I've just been so excited to be able to talk to you today. But, you know, before we kind of jump into Welkini and the wonderful stuff that your folks are doing, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your early years, uh, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I need to apologize. I do have a little bit of an accent. Um, uh, that uh, some of <laughs> no, your listeners will probably recognize. Uh, <laughs> so you will accurately place me uh, as a person who was born in Germany. So uh, I grew up in a, in a German town close to Hanover, which is not that far from the East German border, and yeah. uh, grew up uh, in, a, in a great family. Um, uh, in my, my grandparents, my parents, we lived together in the house. And... Uh, um, and it had really a huge impact uh, on me. There's mm. two things, you know, that I really remember um, that shaped my life. One was that my dad, um, no matter what bad things might have happened in his past, he always looked at the positive aspects mm. of anything. And so I think I took that away from my dad. And then, um, you know, um, <laughs> my grandparents, um, I was spending a lot of time with them. They were absolutely into watching science programs on TV. Oh, um, and wow. maybe that uh, sort of uh, made me be really interested in getting into science and later on Influenced into business. You. Yeah, yeah. Now, is that uh, uh, father's parents or mother's parents? Mother's parents. Yeah. Mother's parents, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Multi-generational family, I love that. Brothers and sisters? I have two uh, brothers. Uh, one is still in my hometown, 
um, and uh, it's close to my parents who are still around, which I'm really thankful for. And then mm -hmm. my other brother, um, we are all kind of international travelers. So he lives in London. I live in Minnesota, but we awesome. do go back to Germany quite a bit. So you grew up in West Germany, but not too far from the East German border. And, and it was during the times of, of separation. It's, it's, it's hard to see. It's been what, almost 30 years now since the Berlin Wall came down. But what, what was that like? Was it, was it evident to you that there were you know, two different Germanys at the time? And if so, you know, how did that impact you growing up? Or, or did it at all? Was it something you didn't even think about? Yeah, it did impact me quite a bit. Uh, yeah. So first of all, we work very close to the East German border. So just about every school outing had us see the wall um, yeah, or in right. fact what we call the Zonengrenze. so the wall is really in berlin but the the border between east border, germany yeah. and west germany was very fortified and we got to see this and said well there are the other germans on the other side uh, so that's number one i also lived very close to a military installation that um, literally had uh, missiles, uh, I think, from the British or maybe the Americans. And so it was pretty evident to us if there was ever going to be a war between East and West, it would be right there where I live. And finally, um, my uh, I have a lot of relatives uh, on the east uh, uh, Eastern side. So right. I actually got to go over occasionally oh, and, and, and meet uh, my, my family. Uh, and so that uh, was very evident uh, to me. Um, and obviously you saw firsthand the different lifestyle, uh, absolutely. And the challenges and so forth they had there. So they, they, they allowed you to go back and forth. Was it kind of um, structured visits or how, how did that happen during the time you were in school? Well, as a, as a West German, you could go over to East Germany because okay. uh, there was one rationale and that is East Germany needed Western currency. And so right. if you went over, you had to exchange German marks to a crazy exchange rate into East German marks that, by the way, you couldn't buy anything for because most hotels <laughs> were requiring West German marks. But of course, uh, yeah, yeah, you could go over. I mean, you, it would take forever to make it over the border. And, you know, you, you know, I remember one trip with my dad. You know, I, I kept on getting pulled over and they were hoping that I had drank some alcohol so they could, you know, um, find me. But I never drank any alcohol. So they never, you know, then and, and I, I guess I must have followed the traffic rules. So nothing ever happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you were still living in West Germany when the wall came down. Is that correct? No, that, that, no, that is not true. I, I had okay. um, so early in my life, I, I was always interested in international travel. I had done an exchange program to France. I had done one to um, England. And um, uh, so when I was in college, I uh, had applied for an exchange program to Israel. That didn't work oh, out, wow. but um, oh. I was still, well, the Israel exchange program isn't going to work, but there's an American one. And so I ended up in, uh, in 84, uh, signing up okay. for an exchange program um, to New York. So this was between Braunschweig, which was the university very close to the border uh, right. and came to the U.S. So I was literally in the U.S. when the wall came down. When the wall came down. Yeah. Yeah. But I yeah, should but... say I returned back to Germany because the wall came down. Course, uh, that yeah. totally changed my career. I thought I was going to be a scientist. I was doing postdoctoral work at the California Institute of Technology. And I thought right. I was going to be a professor in the future. Right. The wall came down and I thought, dang it, I need to be in Germany. I want to be part of this. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I ended up joining McKinsey, a German a consulting firm, international consulting firm, um, and because that allowed me to move to Germany and be part of 
this amazing time of uh, reunifying uh, two countries. Um, fabulous. And yeah. had that not happened, maybe I would have stuck and uh, I might have stayed in academia. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we would all have been poor because of that. But you never know, right? You know, those career decisions are, are uh, you know, always so uh, momentarily and and uh, fle fleeting. Sometimes I know I've certainly made a couple of those in your life. What, what was the big shift then? So you you joined McKinsey here in the states, and then they brought you over to Germany, or did you actually return to Germany and join McKinsey then? Yeah, I joined McKinsey in Germany. Now they did recruiting. Yeah. Uh, they they recruited in the U.S. because it is at the end of the day an American company, so you need to be like bilingual. Um, of course. So uh, um, that's that's how I joined. Um, uh, and my, I guess my biggest asset was I was bilingual, um, and mm. I was at Caltech, which is not a slagger school. Um, <laughs> I won't even ask if you were a good student because once I knew you got into Caltech, that there was no slacker. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, so. And then uh, what were some of those first assignments then? Were you working on some of the things that were building the bridges between East and West at the time with, with McKinsey? Yeah, that had originally been the plan. So one one particular project was um, was really related to a chemical plant. Uh, so there was a German chemical um, company, and they had acquired for, I don't remember, maybe one mark or maybe nothing, they acquired mm. a very large chemical plant in East Germany uh, that was uh, manufacturing silicone. Um, and uh, so one of my assignments was to figure out, well, was that a good purchase or not? I mean, it was free, yeah. but, you know, uh, could you build um, uh, a business out of that? That was right. uh, really, that? really uh, fun to see uh, because while there were all kinds of environmental issues, you know, East Germany had really good technology, particularly in chemicals. Right. Right. And what did you find? Well, we we essentially point. found that they had the best quality silicone in the world. Really? Um, wow. And that they had focused too much maybe on sort of commodities and that really what they were sh should be focusing on was um, sort of the higher-end silicone market. Now, this is at the same time as um, silicone implants for aesthetic purposes, obviously right. – got in trouble. So that was a negative impact. Hmm. But there there clearly was a big market for silicone around the world. And today, I mean, medical devices, you know, uh, silicone is used for a lot of medical devices. That's right. That was the finding. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't have expected yeah. them to have the highest quality silicone, but they did. Awesome. Awesome. And were all your seven years with McKinsey uh, in Germany then, or did you come back over to the States during that period? Oh, I, I forgot to mention. So, um, as it goes, usually, you know, when you come to a country in as a young bachelor, <laughs> I met my wife in the U.S. Um, okay, right. Uh, by the way, side note, she's uh, she's Ukrainian, so obviously not a good time for her right now. No. Um, so she came with me to Germany. Um, my, one of my sons was actually born in Germany, but after three years, it was time to pack the bag and bags and come back to the United States. So I continued yeah. working with McKinsey and then with another consulting firm uh, in the United States um, because that's a nice thing about international companies. They move you around and you actually right. have some input on that. Yeah. Right, right. And when you look back at those consulting years, I know you went on to AT Kearney after that's right. you, you were at McKinsey. You know, it's... it's um, 
it's a very different role than being an operational role. And, and, you know, you've, you've obviously done that. I know we want to talk a little bit about your time at Medtronics and you spent 13, 14 years there. And of course, Welkenny will get to that as well. But, but uh, as a consultant, did you find that your input and your ability to be able to, you know, steer some of your clients uh, satisfactory, you know, from kind of a, uh, an engagement professional standpoint, or, or were you frustrated with regards to, you know, you're making recommendations and then, you know, the client decides not to, thank you very much for your paycheck, but, uh, you know, they don't implement those things. If you put that all on balance, what was your experience as a consultant? Yeah, look, um, it's the one, it's probably the best training ground um, in business that you can um, have besides obviously getting an MBA, but it is real true life um, work on very important topics with very large uh, clients um, and you learn a lot because you move around very quickly. You get very little time to come up with um, solutions that the client had not thought about. Uh, so this is amazing what you learn and the impact you can have. No doubt. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I would recommend to any uh, person that wants to learn business quickly to consider a career in, in management consulting. Now, you made uh, an important point here. At times, it can be frustrating to be a consultant. Right. So that's the old joke, right? If you made a good recommendation, then it was actually the client's idea. If it was the bad one, <laughs> it was your fault. <laughs> um, so the one thing that you can ever do as a consultant saying, hey, trust me, right. I will make this right. work. I put my own risk behind this. I will make this work. Trust me. You can't do that. It, it needs to be analytical. and It's up to the client to implement. The exact opposite is true for a small company. There, it is actually appreciated when you say, you know, trust me, I'll get it done because my career is on the line here and I I will be as successful as the company is. So that is is the major difference. Uh, So the other way around, I would also encourage everyone um, who is a consultant to maybe spend some time in a small or larger company to see what it's like to actually implement. Right, right, exactly. Because it is yeah, highly satisfying, okay? So someone yeah, very absolutely. smart asked me once, what's the best part when you have an engagement, a business engagement or a business deal, okay? It is not when you present your recommendations. It is right. not when you close your business development deal or your acquisition. Yeah. It is when you actually turn the strategic move into true value for your customers, your investors, and your employers, employees. Implementing, the, sorry. implementing the recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. That is fun. That is incredibly satisfying. Right. And you as a consultant, did, you Did don't you start managing that. people? Do you have leadership responsibility at McKinsey and, and Kearney? Yeah, so I, I um, you know, went through the ranks in in, uh, in consulting from associate to senior right. associate to manager, senior engagement manager, and eventually uh, made partner at AD Kearney, was called vice president yeah. at the time. So I did have uh, management responsibility. In fact, you start to get management responsibility very early in your career, and that moves very quickly, right? So you might have a three months project and you have a team, you're responsible for that team. And then you roll over to the next project. You have a brand new team. Uh, The good news is you really get some training for how to manage people, you know, tools and how you assess, you know, you're young at the time, right? I mean, you're in your thirties. You learn how to 
uh, manage your internal team. You know, what's their skills and what's their ability, what's their will. But more importantly, you learn how to influence your client. And your client are typically people that are a ton older than you. By all measures, have more experience than you. And you need to convince them that you're on their side and that you develop a recommendation that they would right. implement. And right. quite frankly, you, you use their time and their employees' time. So I think it's even more important uh, that you learn uh, to develop influencing yeah, skills um, versus just management skills. Leadership is much more important than management. Right in my mind, in, in really any senior right, role. Right. So, so leaving Kearney, you had a couple of different jobs in, in business development. And then I want to talk a little bit about your long-term, you know, time at, at Medtronic. So uh, were you in operating roles there? I know you were working on, you know, some pretty interesting stuff that's led to, to Welkini. And I kind of want to lead up to that. But, um, you know, were, were you based in the U.S.? T- tell us a little bit about the time that you were at Medtronic. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, prior to Medtronic, I should mention this. I was actually with a small startup company, and we had uh, we worked on on stem cell research. So these would be endogenous right. stem cells, um, uh, and the idea was uh, to use them for um, applications in treating um, cardiac disorders such as um, um, infarcts. Uh-huh. And that really got me exposed to Medtronic because Medtronic at the time um, had a program or even a joint venture with Genzyme uh, to use um, uh, cells, in this case, these were actually muscle-derived cells, to implant them uh, in, into, uh, into patients uh, to treat their myocardial infarction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that got me interested in Medtronic, and I ended up um, working for Steve Ostley, who was then the chief a medical and technology officer, right. and I was—I came on board to be a technology scout. So I didn't really sell the company. Um, I was there and, and I had a business development role. Medtronic um, didn't buy the company, but they liked me. So I um, came on board to look around the world to see what, if anything, should Medtronic do in biotech. Mm. So I, my role was to figure out whether Medtronic should get into biotech, um, and I did that for not very long—a um, little bit more than a year. Um, the then CEO, Bill Hawkins, took an interest in me and one day puts me, you know, I, I have a coaching session with him and he says, you know, Lothar, you need to be in an operating company. Um, uh, if you want to have a long-term senior career mm-hmm. in Medtronic, you need to be in an operating company. This is how this works around here. So the next day I, I was in the neuromodulation division running business development and uh, eventually I ran uh, research uh, and business development um, and IP uh, ran some brain infusion programs, and that all got me really interested in applications of technology to the human Passing, brain, right? right? That's the yeah, frontier. Yeah. And so I ended up um, uh, running the deep brain stimulation business as, uh, as GM. So that was at the time about a 400 million dollar business and uh, did that for a couple of yeah. years. And what products did, did Medtronic um, have at that stage? For them? Yeah, so this is so this the neuromodulation division uh, started really for in spinal cord stimulation, but a deep brain stimulation um, uh, it was part of neuromodulation. And I ran that business. So deep brain stimulation is a technology. Uh, think of it as a pacemaker for the right. brain. 
Um, it's approved for Parkinson's uh, disease, uh, for dystonia, the central tremor, epilepsy, and OCD. Um, and uh, and I, I enjoyed it very much to run a global business. So you might wonder why the heck did they think I had any credibility <laughs> to run a business after being the business development and, and, and research neuroscience guy. But the rationale was a, you know, I do, um, I'm bilingual, so I have European experience. Yeah. DBS really came from Europe. Um, uh, obviously, I had some... Oh, so the deep brain simulation past. came from Europe originally, is that correct? Yeah, well, so the original discovery or invention of DBS for Parkinson's was done in Grenoble. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so, uh, so many people will trace the roots of DBS to All Europe. Right. Um, this were actually where the market uh, took off early on. And uh, also, DBS got approved in Europe uh, much earlier than in the got United it. States. So that's why yeah. was, having European experience was was a plus right. here. Cool. So so worked on that business and you were about, as I said, about 13 years, 13 and a half years or so at Medtronic. Now, did that yeah. lead to Welcoming? And, and tell us a little bit about that transition. What, now, was that a company that you founded? No. No. Um, so um, I, uh, you know, at some point you wonder what you want to do with yeah. your life. Um, and Medtronic, you can retire with 55. So I uh, left. So I'm technically retired from yeah. Medtronic. Okay. Um, and uh, I ended up joining um, a company that's then called Max, the Maxtem uh, company or the Maxtem group. Uh, this uh, is a, was a company that uh, a venture firm had acquired um, um, just the prior year. Um, they had also acquired another business. We can talk about these businesses later. And they were looking for a CEO. So it was, you know, it was a great match. I was looking for, you know, maybe trying to be a CEO. Right. Um, uh, they were looking for a CEO. Um, I wanted to stay in in the in brain modulation broadly, so that the modulation of the brain for disorders, and the argument I made to to myself and others is deep brain stimulation is an amazing therapy, but it is incredibly expensive. Mm. It is brain surgery right, after right. all, right? Um, so if you want to treat millions and millions of patients around the world that need uh, treatments for their brain disorders, depression. Uh, Parkinson's, even Alzheimer's, you can't do that with deep brain right. stimulation. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a non-invasive method to modulate the brain. Um, and uh, it, it seemed to make a lot of sense to go for less invasive technologies. Right. And that's really what, that's what excited for me uh, to yeah. join Maxtem. Yeah, cool. And now Maxtem is, is one of the businesses under North Welcome. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, so we grew the company through mostly internal growth, but we also did some acquisitions um, um, over the years, or the last five years, right. I should say. Uh, and so really, we operate the company as Welcony. No one has really heard much about right. Welcony because Welcony is not our brand. Welcony is the company that's where everyone works for. It's our internal brand, if you will. It holds us all together. Right. Right. Um but we really operate uh, in four different or maybe even five different um, uh, spaces. So, but Maxtem was the original company that, uh, that our investors had acquired, um, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, 
that was it, it was the company that originally commercialized this technology. So this is um, um, a, a business that really has two components. One is a research market. Right. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a great research tool because you can non-invasively change brain mm -hmm. states and see what happens. So it's an, an, an amazing tool for scientists, cognitive scientists, other scientists, but it also has clinical applications. So transcranial magnetic stimulation in the United States is approved for uh, treatment-resistant depression. Right. And uh, so that's really the, the, the market that makes uh, the clinical difference. Right. So that's Maxstem. Um, we recently, well, I shouldn't say recently, <laughs> 2020, at the heights of the COVID um, situation, we acquired EGI, the, um, the assets of EGI, which was, is a high-density EEG mm. company uh, from Philips. Uh, and we bought this company because um, we have this long-term vision that transcranial magnetic stimulation needs, needs technology that closes the right. loop. So EEG measures brain activity, TMS changes brain activity. So if you put those two together, you can build a system that delivers transcranial magnetic stimulation that is truly patient specific. So we deliver the right dose at the right wow. frequency to every patient, no more, no less. So that's why we bought EGI. Um, so these are um, those uh, two businesses that relate very closely uh, um, to each other. Um, and then we have a business called Neurosign, which is an interoperative nerve monitoring business, um, which is shares a lot of technology in that it uses an amplifier, just like an EEG, uh, to measure um, um, uh, neuronal activity. It's mostly used for uh, thyroid surgery or parathyroid mm -hmm. surgery to make sure that when the surgeon uh, performs the operation that they don't uh, inadvertently um, damage nerves that are um, in the in, in the surgical field. So that's neuroscience. We're very excited about um, how that business is developing, particularly right now in the United States. And then we have Technomed, Technomed mm -hmm. which is yeah, Technomed is a um, is an entity uh, where we manufacture uh, neurophysiology neurophysiology accessories. Those are needles, uh, EEG cups, and um, uh, it, it is a, a relatively high volume, lower margin um, a business, but it's very attractive. Uh, it's growing. Uh, we um, are worldwide, we believe, the highest quality, low cost manufacturer. We um, do, do not only manufacture in the Netherlands, but also in Indonesia. Right, right. We talked about that earlier. And this is for like EMG tests, EEG tests, right? They're Equipment. Yeah, this is e EMG, right. EEG. Right. Equipment yes. that's used in the in the monitoring of the nerves. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Yes. And how many employees in total? Um, so we are around 500 wow. employees on a worldwide basis. Now, that's obviously heavily biased by the, the uh, number of employees we have in our plant. In Indonesia. Indonesia. Yeah. yeah, that's where yeah. the manufacturing is located. And how many are in the U.S.? In the U.S., we have – I need to look this up. Oh. We, we have about 40 people Perfect. in the U.S., but that number is uh, rapidly yeah. growing. Uh, we have about 100 people in the U.K., about 40 or so in the Netherlands. Definitely. And then we we also have 10 or so in Eugene, yeah. Oregon. Awesome. Awesome. Where I went to school. Great, great part of the country to be in. You, you purchased a, a company out there, if I recall, right? Yeah, that's yeah, EGI. I mentioned that yeah. earlier. We bought them from Philips. Yeah. Um, 
it was a, in fact, EGI was founded uh, in Eugene, um, but now um, they're part of the Maxim yeah, family. Cool. We still have some, we, we still have presence though in right, Eugene. Right. So I'm, I'm curious over the, you know, the arc of your career, you know, obviously studied both in the U.S. as, as well as in Germany, went back to Germany, did your consulting, you know, worked in operating companies, Medtronic's, of course, huge, hugely successful you know, wonderful. And now kind of, you know, in, in, in a smaller startup, but uh, very, very interesting field. How has kind of your leadership style evolved over that time? So obviously at the end of the day, as a CEO, the buck stops with you. <laughs> right. So I, I, what that means is that there's at times enormous stress um, on you. Yeah. So you, it's, it's not in a big company. There's always other people that are with you in the boat or that you might report to. And, you know, running a small company, being the CEO, obviously put some stress mm -hmm. on you. Um, but that is actually quite enjoyable, I think, um, because in a small company you can move relatively right. fast. Right. Um, even with 500 people, I just know pretty much everyone's still around yeah. here. And my leadership has changed in that uh, if you ask people around here, they like when I when I inspire yeah. them. I think people truly buy into this idea, how do we grow a company quickly based on technology? Right. How do we close the loop in EEG? How do we come up with a new TMS technology? Mm -hmm. How do we launch a new product in interoperative nerve monitoring? We can move very, very fast. And that is, this is great because, you know, in a big company, that is not always right. the case. The big company has a safety yeah, net. that's right. Um, um, but, um, in a small company, you just go for it. And what's really enjoyable is people, people come along with you. They, they, they don't really work here just to have a job. They work here because they believe in our yeah. mission. Yeah. And that is, that is so important to me. Um, everyone knows this around me that, um, nothing ever gets me really annoyed, except if someone says that's not my mm. job. Um, I, so my response to this uh, when someone says, hey, wait, why did you do this? This is my job. Um, I usually say, you know, the right response to that is, thank you. You just helped me successfully. <laughs> Let's turn that around. I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, my message always is um, everyone has responsibility to the customer. If a customer calls with a question, a complaint, or a compliment, even if you're not the right person for this approach, take the responsibility right. and say, I might not be the person that gets you the right answer, but I take personal responsibility that you do get yeah, the right answer. Yeah. It is that kind of change. It's that kind of attitude that you need um, in, in, in any company, really. But it's something that is incredibly powerful in a small company. How else do you inspire others? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I would say... You know, I don't like to sort of brag and talk about me. How We're sharing secrets here. Our audience is on pins and needles waiting for your response. <laughs> you know, um, look, I, I think my team knows I, that I wouldn't expect anything from any employee that I wouldn't be willing mm, to do myself. Yeah. Uh, I'll just give you some little examples. Um, a couple of months or years ago, really, there was a machine that needed a little 
adjustment. Really, we needed to change a part, okay? And we could have flown our technician out who at the time was living in uh, North Carolina and fly up to the Twin right. Cities to make that right. change. In a big company, of course, that would have happened. And I said, no way. I'll just jump in the car, give me the <laughs> screwdriver, give me the part, I do it myself, okay? And everyone's saying, that's crazy. The CEO shouldn't be fixing mm -hmm. machines. Yeah, the CEO shouldn't be fixing machines. But the image that that brought, these customers were truly yeah. impressed. So it wasn't about me fixing the machine. It was me engaging with them how to make their TMS mm -hmm. program more successful. Mm -hmm. And we got pictures taken and we sent them around. Mark must have sent them around. <laughs> Mark runs PR for us. And people were, you know, they made fun of it, but it was inspired. It yeah. was it it was a message that I don't feel You're too good to, roll up your sleeves. to yeah. show yeah. up and roll up yeah. my sleeves. Yeah. I, I think that is this might be a fault of mine a little bit that I am willing to do that, but I think it does. It's a make great a example. When when do you decide if it's time to micromanage someone or you know stay out of the sandbox, so to speak? Yeah. So, well, that is occasionally necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, I prefer the leadership style and I tend to think that if you tell people sort of the general direction, the objectives, they will do the right thing. And quite frankly, no one gets up in the morning to screw up, right? <laughs> right. So um, everyone wants to do a good job, but sometimes people just don't have the yeah. skills. Um, and then you have to micromanage um, and um, hopefully that micromanagement helps the individual be successful yeah. because they might not have the skills. Uh, they might need some training. They might some need some expertise, but sometimes they might just lack motivation. And occasionally that might even lead to, um, to them uh, looking for another yeah. opportunity, sure. which is yeah. okay. Not everyone fits uh, into what we expect from our employees. Yeah. yeah. Makes good sense. And, you know, you're growing so fast and it, it's such an intriguing area. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've got a, a lot of very, very smart people working for you. But, you know, a CEO's role really is to build that company culture. And you know, how do you go about doing that? You know, what, what you know, in kind of an, in the second question, what's kind of unusual or, or unique about the, about the company culture? Well, let me maybe start by saying there was a challenge when I came mm -hmm. on board, right? Because the company grew uh, through acquisitions. Right. So there was Maxstem, and then there was the Technomed acquisition, and then there was EGI. the EGI yeah. acquisition, yeah. okay? And, you know, being in Whitland, Wales is very different than in Maastricht. It's very different than being in the U.S. <laughs> Even Minnesota Oregon. is yeah. very yeah. different in Eugene. <laughs> and obviously, we have yeah, Indonesia. Right. So, um, so the one thing I learned from that is that when we um, did the EGI acquisition, we changed the name of the company, mm. right? So rather than saying Maxim acquired EGI, we said we have Welcony. Mm. And Welcony is the parent company, and it has these businesses and these brands under age. And that, I think, made a huge difference why the EGI team felt welcome from day right. one. Right. So that's number one. Number two... We actually did spend some time on putting together our values um, that that uh, we share, um, and they're very simple mm. values. But we repeat them. We we hang them up in in our in our room. And if you're interested, I'll just yeah, tell you what they do. are. Yeah. 
Um, so it's collaboration and, and leadership. It is accountability and commitment. By the way, I just talked about accountability and commitment when I That's gave you right. the example that I expect yeah. everyone to respond to a customer. Uh, respect and integrity and changing lives. Mm. Wow. Um, and I can maybe say a little bit more about the last one, changing lives. Um, the one thing I did learn at Medtronic is how important a patient-focused mission is, and we're trying to do this here as yeah. well. Uh, so we put the patient and the clinician at the center of everything we do, but the way that we execute is by being respectful, having high mm. integrity, show accountability and commitment, but work as a team, collaborate and lead. Yeah. Love it. Fantastic. So, what do you look for when you're hiring? You know, people making bets on them to you know come and join your organization. Well, so first of all, I like to promote internal yeah. people. Nothing is more satisfying than being able to offer the job to someone who's already right. working for you. Okay, I, I think often uh, leaders or managers make the mistake that they always look on the outside for bringing talent in, and and they. Uh, might not appreciate that the talent that they already right. have. Sure. So I feel very strongly about this. Most of the time, if you see talent in someone, if you give them the next challenge, they raise, rise to mm -hmm. the occasion. Yep. So that's number yep. one. So look for, for internal talent, people that have the right commitment, that want to make a difference and bring them, uh, bring them along, give them a chance. Now, of course, they still, you know, that creates another <laughs> open position. So you need to hire right. people. Um, absolutely. You know, and, and if you grow as fast as we are growing, you know, we do need to hire a lot of sure. people. And um, I don't know, I, it sounds weird, but you become wise over the, over the years when you interview right. people. Sure, you can ask all the questions, you can check all the analytical skills, the team skills, what capabilities they have and what examples they have. But to me, I usually can tell within 15, 20 mm. minutes whether someone is the right mm. candidate. And I can't totally describe mm. it, but what I can tell you is there's a spark. It It no longer feels like an interview. It feels like conversation you're already working yeah, together yeah. so what i'm looking for is is that people during the interview during the discussions show curiosity right. if they ask me questions and and i'm truly curious about the business me what we do then some magic happens because you don't talk about why they should be joining the company you actually start talking about how you would approach right. business problems. Right. So that's what I'm looking for. Um, obviously, you need to check everything else, but that that spark that 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 we already working together makes a huge uh, impact on me when I hire people. Yeah. Do you have a favorite interview question you like to ask, Lothar? Yes, I do, and most of the time people don't understand it. <laughs> well, so let's hear. I it. usually have. So I, I, I love to ask if you're the answer. What's the question? Oh, that's a good one. What's um, the best response you've had to that? Uh, well, <laughs> sometimes I have to really explain what that means, and sometimes right. it shocks people. Uh, and I'm more, um, I am 
you know, I'm more than happy then explain why I'm asking the question. Um, I, I really can't say that I can tell you what the, the best answer to that question is. Um, but I can tell you that if people don't have an answer to that question, I usually tell them that they need to look and develop their own brand because mm. if they don't know what they are, what they stand for, what they want to accomplish and what they're good at, um, then they they might not be a really good fit for the company. Right. I want to add right. one more thing though that just brings us up because I asked this question because that allows them to talk about what they're really good at right? versus trying to sort of talk about the development needs or what they want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. My advice always to people is to say, you know what? Yes, if you have development needs, you do need to fo you need to work on them. But it, that only makes you average. If you're weak right. on something, you get to average. Always focus on what you're really, really good at. Yeah. yeah. Right? Focus on the things that you're already good at and become even better. Yeah. You know, become a superstar in that particular skill. In, in, this could be innovation or that could be inspiring people or this could be being really good in building financial spreadsheets but know know what that is right and and so i'm asking that question to just see whether people really have an answer to that yeah. to that question the the people that are most self-aware usually have the best answer to this right right and it starts a conversation to your earlier point yes right because then you're talking about who they are and what they want to be. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Lothar, you've been very, very generous with your time, but we always have one last question that we ask all our guests, and that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who perhaps has their eyes on their own corner office someday? Yeah, so um, never do anything that someone tells you have to do just to develop your career, but your heart isn't in it. Mm, yeah. Always go for an opportunity that can inspire you, where you get a chance to work with people that, that can really teach you something or that you can yeah. learn something from. So that's, that's sort of number one. Always go for what inspires you. Don't go what's logically the next step. Right. Uh, that, I think, uh, is the, the biggest mistakes that people can make um, in their career. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Well, Lothar Krinky, CEO of Welkany, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.